What are we all going to experience? No one ever discusses, and we are never prepared for. Welcome to the Guiding Grief Podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Welsenbach. Our mission is to converse with faith leaders, gurus, and medical professionals about grief and how it affects individuals, families, and communities. Our first guest is Pastor Ryan Wright. He has over 30 years of pastoral experience in three different church communities. He is currently on staff at Bethel Church in San Jose, California. Ryan served as a chaplain after 9-11 at Ground Zero in New York City immediately following the attacks on the World Trade Center. Ryan is a friend and an excellent speaker. I'm excited to have him as our guest. Welcome, Pastor Ryan Wright. Ryan, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, start off with the first question, something um, that I think is incredibly important is, when did you know that you were equipped to guide and listen to those uh, that are grieving? It's a great question. Uh, I would say that I, I don't know if there was a moment that I would go to and say, okay, hey, this is when I went. I had this, like this, like, ooh, I had this, the light that came and said, go help people in grief. What I found is, is it was really not about me knowing, it was about others knowing. That I found myself being approached by people, having conversations about people that were in crisis. One of the things that I've come to realize about my life is that one of the reasons I think God put me on the planet is to help people in the midst of crisis. I just think it's that it's one of those things that I'm supposed to do. And from the time that I was in high school, especially in college, I found these pe- I found people approaching me and saying, "Hey, I've got this problem. Could you help me? Yeah, hey, I've got this crisis in my life. What do you think I should do?" And so I would say that probably more than uh, me knowing it first that I was designed to help people in crisis, I began to realize that that's what other people thought. Because, right. because you really can't help people if they don't want you to help them. And so when they begin to come and approach me, it's when I begin to look around and realize, hey, I think I'm supposed to do this with my life. So, so, so we're in college, I begin to realize this is, this is my journey. Imagine it started a little younger with people knowing that you could listen and translate. Well, I would say honestly, when I was younger, I was more of a talker than a listener. And I had to learn, I had to pick up how to do that. I had to learn how to just be quiet and, and ask questions versus making statements and allow people the opportunity to talk. But, um, but I think people uh, were always comfortable in conversation with me, so that, that helped that. Right, you're able to pull the things out of them yeah. uh, by, by hearing. Uh, listening is one of the most important things that uh, many of us fail at on a regular basis. Absolutely. So as soon as we become in tune with that, we can change and help people more. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the first family that you assisted, um, specific to maybe a funeral? So I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad was a pastor, and I went I went to funerals like all the time growing up. And so like, and I remember I even actually worked uh, with a buddy whose family was uh, clean funeral homes. And I remember that was just kind of the. I, I look back at my life now, and I go, "Oh my goodness!" But I was, I mean, God was just designing these experiences. Right, and you're still connected to it. And, today. I'm, and I'm still connected to it. But the first funeral I ever officiated, I was a young pastor. I worked in Atwater um, at a place called Winton, California, which most people won't know what Winton is. It's a small farm community right next to a small farm community, and Atwater was the big of the two. But I was in Winton, California, in the San Joaquin Valley, and um, I got a call. I was just a youth pastor, and I got a call from our senior pastor, and he said, "Hey, there's a family that needs someone to do a funeral. Would you go do that funeral?" And I said, "Sure. When is it?" He said, "It's in one hour." Oh. And so this was my first like I've never done this before. So I just put on the suit, the suit that I had, and it was a graveside service, and I walked down there, and no one told me it was a cremation. And so I was expecting to see this casket and they had put this person in a cigar box. And so I'm kind of like, huh, there's a story behind I don't think, box. Yeah, I think so. But I, first I thought, well, it must've been a small person because I wasn't even familiar yet with cremation. And so we went through, I, I get there and this guy has his t-shirt on. It was pretty wild. And he says, um, says, I like my women like I like my cars hot and fast. And I'm like, oh, okay. And it's got a, chick on with a bikini on on this on this charger and I'm sitting there as a young pastor and I just had no clue I had no clue so I just did the best I could but I learned on that day that there's never going to be a perfect circumstance that funerals um, are for everyone that it's not just a, a moment of refined for refined people everyone 
everyone goes through grief and they do grief in their way and it's an interesting thing that this cigar box was very comforting for that family because this guy loved to smoke cigars and they just came as they were and that's the best way for us to to handle grief as we are to do it in our way and everyone grieves differently and so we allow people to do that so that was my first funeral experience right there <laughs> That's, that's incredible because you have to remove so much prejudice going in. You have this Absolutely. idea that uh, this is how we do things, this is how it should be done, and there's an A, B, and C to uh, beginning, middle, and end. And the next thing you know, they're shaping the way that you need to guide them. And I would say, Nicholas, I would say that in my, in my earlier years, I tried really hard to help people grieve right. And right. Because I thought there was a right. I thought there was a right way and a wrong way, and so I really worked hard to put them in my box. And that wasn't as effective. I look back now and realize, oh, there's a better way to do this. Everyone grieves differently. Some people are expressive in their grief, and we need to give them permission to cry and to talk and to share stories. And some people are reflective in their grief. That means we need to let them just sit quietly. We don't need to ask them to talk. We don't need to try to get them to express themselves. We just kind of let, need to let them be present. And for people that are reflective in their grief, for sometimes for them just to show up at the funeral is just a huge part of their grief process. Right. And if we're not careful, people get in a funeral and they look around and they, they try to do a, 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 I just can't think of the term right now. Stop, cut that, <laughs> a comparative grief analysis. We get, so, so sometimes we get people at funerals and we watch people doing comparative grief analysis and they're trying to see how much that person loved the deceased compared to how much they loved the deceased. Right. And that's a, that's just a skewed analysis because we all grieve differently and we can't compare. And so allowing each person to go through their grief process in their way, I, I've learned over the years, is just the right way to do that. I feel you open it up that way when you... Uh, preside over services and the, the events that I've been in with you that I've participated in I think you bring everybody in and remind them that that's part of it because when we show up to a funeral service we sit based on our relationship yeah you know if we're immediate family and we're best friends we're we're ushering ourselves to be next to them and if we're um, removed a little bit we sat in the middle of the chapel and if we knew their uncle and we were yeah. there because they were a friend we, we sit in the back row. back that's right uh, so we, we do that that spatial awareness yeah. by that but I, I've seen you do that and one of the other things that uh, I've heard you talk about which I think is really important is our change in time and the way that we need to bring and allow people to grieve as it relates to sharing because in the past, you'd show up at a place and you've said something similar to this, and you're at that Christmas dinner, at a holiday dinner, and everyone says, you know, don't don't talk to his wife about his husband passing. That's not something we should don't do. Don't mention John's name. Don't, yeah, don't mention John's name, but some, she's waiting for someone to She's dying inside. Absolutely. Because all of her thoughts, all of her memories are about John and Christmas. Absolutely. And she would love for someone to share that with her. And I'm I think, saying, I'm thinking of him. Yeah. I'm thinking of, of, of this person. Well, John would have loved this. Yeah. Wouldn't he? And she would, and, and we think, well, that's going to cause a lot of tears. And my thought, well, maybe, but they might be good tears. They might be a tears of celebrating John's life. And, and people that are grieving have a way of letting you know if they do or if they don't want to talk to you about it. Right. And, and I think it's always good to float it out there. And, but I've almost always found it to be very helpful for those people. Especially when we're, we're in those environments and we're in those places where people together, if you're with those people and we're, we're withholding because we're scared that it might offend or bring something up in somebody that they're not ready to share, we can't have that moment unless someone broaches it. Right. And then there's therapy. I think we, we value our time more when we're together. Yeah. Because we've allowed that to come out and say, oh my gosh, there's this mortality thing that we yeah. all need to face. Well, even asking you, I mean, you lost your brother a few years ago. When you get together as a family, uh, you guys like to talk about your brother. That's, that's the sole purpose of us being together, I feel, this day. Now is to, to celebrate Nate. That's what, how we refer to it. And, it is, uh, and so from your experience, that's, how is that helpful to you? Why is that helpful to you? I, it, for all the right reasons. We're, we're keeping him alive, keeping his memory alive, and then all the wonderful things uh, in his altruism in life, we're, we're able to continue to share how he's wonderful. So it's yeah. it's uh, incredibly important um, 
someone had showed up to an event that we had uh, for Nate, and they had lost a loved one, and they said, geez, I, I, I wish we did this. In hindsight, we're looking back, and we've just not necessarily buried or pushed it under the rug, but we decided that we weren't going to have the conversations. When some, people, when some people bury their loved ones, they bury all the memories, too. Right. And they never allow themselves to enjoy that. And I just say, hey, don't, don't put everything in the casket. <laughs> Leave some <laughs> stuff out. Because there's some stuff that you really want to hang on to and remember and celebrate about that person's life. They made a, Nate made an investment in your life. He he when he died, everything everything didn't die with him. Everything he gave to you is still living. Right. He he and he's getting compound interest on that investment. <laughs> and so I think it's wonderful that your family gets together and runs a race. They get together and run a, a run a race in Nick's honor. Nate's honor. Yeah. Fan, not in your honor. You're not dead yet. <laughs> I'm but, there. I get yeah, to be there. That's, yeah. that's the and I think that's part. just a, that's a beautiful example of, hey, we don't have to forget those we lose. We can allow their memories to live on. As a matter of fact, right after 9-11, uh, in September 11th, we put banners all over the country. And they said, we will never forget. I can't, um, you can't think of that time without an overpass or a bridge, you know, with a flag draped or a sign saying. And we knew that was important to never forget. Now, now why, why do we think that's important for us as a country, but not important for us as individuals? We should, we should say, hey, we'll never forget. And, and the way you never forget is you keep talking about someone. Right, keep them you alive. You keep them alive in your memories. You allow the things that they gave to you to just be talked about and to be celebrated. And so I, I think when we lose someone we love, that we should, um, as part of our grief process, we should put a banner up that says, I will never forget. That's that incredible. So, Can you talk a little bit about your experience at 9-11? Uh, and you've shared uh, things in the past that are just eye-opening okay. as related to uh, being on the ground and amidst uh, the rubble and chaos and how you were able to help uh, any of those individuals grieve? Yeah, I, I would say when, in, in, in light of your f question you asked first about, hey, when did you realize? I, I would say 9-11, while I knew before 9-11 that I was supposed to help people in grief, 9-11 kind of turbocharged and sent me into a new realm of it's helping people in crisis. It was. It was, it was almost like um, there was a moment. I'll never forget the the morning that the towers fell, I was standing um, in front of the TV in my house and I watched the towers fall. And that first video clip came through of the skeletal structure that was left there on the corner, right there on, on the West Highway. And um, I remember looking at it and I, you can, I, I had this strong sense, now you can call it, I heard, I felt like God told me, that's what I would say. I heard God say, some would say, you just had a strong intuition or whatever. But I, standing there, I was standing there in front of the TV and I felt strongly something say to me, someone who I believe was God say to me, I need you to go there. And you were here. I was in Santa Clara, California. Wow. And you know, all the flights were grounded and it was too far to walk. And, and I'm looking and I'm saying, yeah, well, and my, honestly, my first thought was, what am I gonna do there? Because that was a war zone. And right. I, at this point, we had just, the planes had hit the tower. It was chaos. And, um, and I just ignored it. And then as, we, as the day went on, I kept thinking, no, I'm supposed to go there. And so I called a buddy of mine who was a chaplain with, uh, with a, a, a urban search and rescue group. And I just said, and he had worked at Oklahoma City at the bombing there at the federal building. And um, I said, hey, if you need help and they need chaplains at, night, at, at Ground Zero in New York, I'm in. And that's all I said. And then one week to the day, um, I'm standing there at ground zero and um, staring at that very same structure that I had seen um, a week earlier on TV. I imagine far more sobering to be oh, in the presence oh, of Oh, there was still flames coming out of the building, wow. out of the pile. And I remember looking at, at that and thinking, how in the world did I get here? Wow. And again, I heard that voice. And that voice said to me, there's no place you can't go if I want you there. And, and it was in that moment that I realized that um, anytime God wants to use me, I need to be available. No matter how bad the tragedy, 
no matter how big the circumstance, that I need to be there for people. And so I've kept those boots. I was wearing a certain pair of boots that day. They're in my office with the, with the past that I had from ground zero. And they're there to remind me that wherever God wants me, he'll put me there. And he'll put me in places where I can help people in grief. And so that's what 9-11 was. So now, today, I, I'm very mindful of the fact that when I'm meet, meeting with a family, that as, as poignant as 9-11 was for us as a nation, that when they lose a father or a mother or a spouse, that for them, it's, it's like one of their towers has fallen. That, that they, they set in their own personal ground zero, and it's probably even more meaningful to them than 9-11 was for us as a country, because it's far more personal. And right. so, as, as, as so uh, when I went to ground zero, uh, my job basically was to just sit around with police and fire department, with their personnel, and we just looked, we looked at the pile and we talked for two and a half weeks. Just talked about life, about death, about grief, about what do we do with this, and um, it was pretty meaningful. And um, some poignant moments that happened there were, were pretty incredible. That's incredible imagery to, uh, to liken those two things. And I remember the first time um, that I, I'd heard you share that message about those towers and how it likened it, it, it immediately impacted me because yeah. I got it. Yeah. I got it. And I think sometimes someone thinks about, no, no, you can't. Those things are not the same, but they are. Our entire country grieved together. That's one thing that we all have in common. Sure. It was the first time in our uh, in our history, or maybe the only time in our history, that something happened that changed the course of the world and the universe. That's right. And it was about those two towers. But a tower, you know, you lose someone. Yeah. And uh, I've shared in the past one of the things that um, that I don't get when you're in the midst of that grief, those initial that denial stage and you're looking out in the sea of people and the world hasn't stopped. Yeah. And you're like, did you did yeah. you not get the memo that this thing has fallen, that this pillar of my life and you want to go and get in the middle of the street, you want to stop traffic and say, Don't you realize that my brother is no longer here? How can you go on with life as normal? Right. It, it, and it that's a normal feeling for people. Yeah. Uh, and but that, that path that's associated with our, our country grieving and with us grieving, uh, there's parallels. Totally. In there, uh, and how we've all, none of us have forgotten that that took place in our country. None of us forget the loved one, hopefully, that right. we've lost. Um, but we have an evolution of grief, and it, it's the, it never goes away, but it, it constantly needs to be addressed. Was there anyone there that you had a resounding impact on, or in turn had a resounding impact on you? Well, that's a great, uh, great question. Whether or not I had a resounding impact on them is, the, is their story to tell, right. not mine. Uh, I could probably think, yeah, oh yeah, I, I changed a lot of people's lives, and everyone's going, yeah, who was that? Yeah. But um, I, I think there was some meaningful conversations that I had. Um, I'll tell you what, what I learned, the three things I, learned, things I learned from Ground Zero. Number one, I learned that when, um, when there's a tragedy like this, um, we all need each other. Everybody, everybody needs somebody. And it was an amazing thing to me when I went to, to, to Ground Zero to see all the different people that came and contributed to helping the cause, whether it be construction workers that were cleaning out the pile with their machinery and with their welding, or it be a, a, a master chef that was in a blown out building serving a gourmet meal to firefighters, police officers, and the National Guard. Or, um, or it was McDonald's handing out cheeseburger, burgers and, and, and boxes of chicken nuggets as people were walking by. There was, there was feet doctors that were there making sure that everyone's feet were okay. I mean, it was just, there was a masseuse that was there making sure that everybody was taken care of. It was an amazing, it was an amazing thing how we all, we all came together and we were all aware that we needed each other. That in tragedy, we need one another. And then the third thing that I think was really, uh, evident. It's amazing how we all were aware of the fact that we all need a power greater than ourselves to help restore sanity to our lives. You know, we live in a nation where sometimes prayer is kind of the taboo thing. And everybody wanted to pray at 9-11. Everybody wanted to talk about God and where was God. And, and we had a lot of questions, but we all were looking. You know, you could turn on the, the TV and you would see people from all different faith walks getting together for prayer services. We all intuitively knew we needed a power greater than ourselves 
to restore sanity to our lives. And again, and, that parallel, every single time we lose someone, our, our, we, we always need to have a service. Sure. We need to take that pause. Yes. And um, I mean, we, we've, uh, I'm sure both exper- experienced something similar when we're meeting with a family and we're having a conversation about the service itself and whether the person lived a faith-based life or not. Yeah. Um, as soon as they get in there and say, hey, you know, Ryan, I, I don't want you to, I don't want to have any religion whatsoever, right. but I need the 23rd Psalm. Yeah. We have to do an all Father yeah. and a Hail Mary. Yes. yes. Let's make sure we pray, but let's not be religious at all. Whatsoever. And <laughs> sometimes people say to me, hey, I'm not, a, I'm not, I, I don't like organized religion. And I say, well, I'm the right pastor for you because I'm not very organized. And so, but I'll rub it for some, for some people's taste. But you're right. There's a spiritual aspect to it. Um, there's a, we're all, we're all physical, emotional, and spiritual beings. And what, however you choose to believe, or whatever you choose to believe about that, um, we, we can't ignore that. I mean, when we just go to a, to a service, or we, we're at the bedside of a loved one who just passed away, there's an, there's an obvious absence of that person. We see them, we recognize them, but it's really obvious to us that they're not there because they, they're not the same. They've moved. And the question always comes to, where did they go? And I think our thoughts always, when you lose someone and they die and they move on, well, when you have someone that's moved on in eternity, your thoughts always go to the place where your loved one is. And so I think that that's always a, a mindset that we have and a thought that we have there. And how to grieve that is the challenge for us. So you asked a story about 9-11 and um, it, was, um, it, was, it was in the middle of the night uh, when I encountered one firefighter. And it was, um, I would say probably like two in the morning. And when I was there, I covered the, the, the night shifts so that the chaplains who lived in New York City could go home, be with their families, and come back the next day. And so we would come about 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, and then we would just be there because this, this ground zero kept going 24-7. They never stopped working. There were lights, um, like uh, big generators with lights all around it. It was almost like a Hollywood set. It was like you were waiting for someone to yell, cut. Uh, it or, was, or hoping. Hoping, right. Yeah. It was so surreal. But it, it couldn't have been real. So it was about two o'clock in the morning and I was walking um, again, kind of in that general area where that skeletal structure was of the tower. And, um, I saw this firefighter sitting, and he was sitting down uh, on a sidewalk, Indian style, and I looked over at him and I thought, um, uh, he doesn't want to talk to me. He just had that look. And you just learn as a pastor, you just learn that there's some people that have no desire to talk to you. Um, I was wearing a clerical collar, so I really looked pastoral, and he just did not look. So I walked by him, but I kept being tugged to have a conversation with this guy. Right, I need, I need to get I talk. needed, yeah, I felt like I was supposed to talk to him. And so so God and I had this conversation, and I, I kind of heard God saying, go talk to him. And I, I said, God, I don't think he wants to talk to me. And, and, and then I heard, I walked by again, and God would say, I told you, go talk to him. And I said, God, I don't think you heard me. He doesn't want to talk to me. And God's like, well, I don't think, I don't think you're hearing me. I don't, I don't care what he thinks. I want you to go talk to him. Right. So eventually, you know, whenever you and God don't agree, you should probably reconsider your position. And so I thought through, and I thought, well, okay, I think um, I'm going to go talk to him. So I went and I sat down next to him. And as I sat down next to him, um, I, I, he just began to talk. And he said, uh, I lost 40 friends in there. And I just listened. He said, not 40 guys that I knew. He said, I lost 40 of my friends. And you know, when you think about that, that was back in the day when our phones had speed dial, that when he wanted to go have a beer with somebody, like 40 of those guys weren't there anymore. And uh, so I just, I just listened to him and I asked him a question. I said, so how, um, how are you, how's your, how are you doing at home? And he said, well, I, I went, I went home after the first day I was here and there was a big sign on the door that said, dad, you're our hero. And uh, he said, I went in and, and, uh, I went in to hug my wife and, and I, I just had to, I couldn't handle it. He says, cause I'm not a hero. I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, 
I didn't die in the towers. They're the heroes. And I asked him, I said, well, if you were on duty that day, would you have ran into the towers? He goes, oh, yeah. And he used a few words to, to, that I won't use on yeah, the podcast. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, but but he, said, he said, you know I'd go in there. I said, so that's why you're a hero. Because you represent everybody that did. Because we know you would have. Because that's the way you're wired. And you're still here. If something and else happens, you're still here. willing to do that. We still know that you count. And as I, um, as I, I talk to him, one of the things to realize, I think one of the hardest people to, one of the hardest people groups to help grieve are men. Absolutely. And so as I began to talk to him, uh, he said, you know, I came home and, and he said, uh, my son came up to me and his son's name was Ryan. And now I'm pretty aware that there's a lot of kids that are younger nowadays that are named Ryan. Um, but for him, that was like, oh my goodness. This must be a sign from God. That There's you're a sign. To, yeah, yeah. We're, we're supposed to be and talking. I don't. I don't think it means anything. But if he does, I'm like, hey, Absolutely. let's go with it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. God made your son named Ryan just so he could, so I could talk to you. But as we begin to talk, he says, when Ryan comes up to me, he uh, he asked me how I'm, how what it is, what it's like down here. And he says, I just have to go and and I just leave. And I said, well, why do you do that? He goes, well, I go back and I just sit on the back and cry with my dog. I said, why, why, do you, why do you do that? He said, well, because my son needs me to be strong. And I said, I know that he needs you to be strong, but why do you, not, why do you leave? He goes, because my son needs me to be strong. I said, I know, I know your son needs you to be strong, but why do you leave? And he looked at me like, are you an idiot or are you deaf? Can, right. can you hear me? And I said, well, who told you that you couldn't be strong in front of your son? And tell him what it's really like down here. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, what your son doesn't need is for you to retreat. What your son needs is for you to say, son, it's really hard. And he needs you to embrace him. And he needs to feel your warm tear run off your cheek onto his neck. And he, he's saying to you, every time he asks you, he says, dad, how do we grieve this? Dad, how do, we, how do we deal with this kind of a tragedy? And he's looking for you as his father to show him how to grieve. Permission. Basically, he needed permission. And I looked, and, and he's just got tears that are running down his cheek. And he says, you mean, you mean it's okay for me to cry? And I said to him, it's not just okay. It's, it's imperative. It's important. It's how we cleanse. It's strategic. We're and he goes, he goes, my wife has only seen me cry twice in our 18 years of marriage. And I, I had the collar on, so I said, hey, I'm not Catholic, so I'm, I'm not here to take your confession. <laughs> but, but that's too bad. Yeah, and, that's and, the good stuff. That exposure, that, uh, uh, that and, vulnerability. And Nicholas, here's what he said. He said, no one has ever told me that it's okay to cry. Um, and I said, you have to do it. Permission granted is a, a lot of what men need. They just need to know it's okay to share their grief. And we just sat there together and we cried. And we just had this conversation. And I said to him, I said, hey, would, would you like me to come to your house and talk to your family? And he said, um, he said, you know what, I live in Long Island. And that's a long ways away. And I'm like, dude, I came from California. Long Island just isn't that far from me. <laughs> yeah. and, but it's down we, the street. Yeah, yeah, but we had just a great conversation. And, and it was, it was, it's conversations like that where people are given permission to cry. So like whoever's listening today, they may not be a Christ follower, but I am, I'm a follower of Christ and really uh, claim, look at his teachings. And one of the things that Jesus taught is that uh, blessed are those who mourn. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And I've always thought that was a peculiar statement. I always thought, well, you know, cause I don't feel very blessed in the midst of my loss or my grief. I don't go around going, hey, this is awesome, man. I'm blessed today. Yeah. So, like I said earlier, I've lived long enough now to know that whenever Jesus and I don't agree, I should probably reconsider my position. And so I've thought through what he, what he might have meant by that. And I've come to this conclusion that Christ is saying to us, blessed are those who embrace the process of grief. It's not until you embrace the process that you will ever truly find comfort. So we found this firefighter at Ground Zero, and, and he was trying to do grief, but he wasn't allowing himself to go through the process. When inside, he wanted to cry. 
he didn't have permission to do it. And somehow the things that he learned, and I think we all have these in our lives, right? We all have things that we learned how to cope, we, we learned how to grieve from a generation before us who maybe did it different than us, and we don't allow what we're naturally feeling to come through, and we just need permission. And I would think if there's anything that we would want to give to people today, it is we want to give them permission to grieve. It's okay to cry. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to celebrate the life of your loved one. There's not really a right way or a wrong way, but they're the, the right, but they're, the important thing is that you know there is a way to grieve. And so it's not important how you do it, but that you do it. And this guy needed permission to cry. Other people need permission to talk and to share their memories. Some people need permission to go sit quietly by themselves, to meditate, reflect, and remember their loved one. And they just need to do it in a very personal way. Everyone's I mean, just where it's different as introverts are from extroverts. Everybody processes differently. And so I think that was a poignant moment. I think that was a meaningful moment for that guy because of the fact that he, he finally figured out a way. And so I told him, I said, man, your dog doesn't need you to hug him and sit on the back porch with you. Right. It's your wife that needs, it's your son that needs you. And you get to, you get to guide them as, as, as a man, you get to guide them on, hey, this is how we do grief in our family. And I think every, every man needs to understand our role in helping people grieve. So one of the things you're saying is that there's, in time, we've evolved in our ability to accept things yeah. in our world. Yeah. Whereas if this had happened 50 years ago, the expectation might have been at that time, suck it up. Yeah. Let's go. Don't do that. Well, we're living in a better time. Yeah. The way we responded to Pearl Harbor was that everybody went down, signed up for the army, and we went to war. We fought. They didn't do a lot of grief stuff. But we found that after, even after they came back from war, from battle, that they didn't know how to handle their PTSD. And one of the things I realized in New York City was that on that day, we had a, we had a country that was full of, of PTSD survivors. That, that people had a, there's always a post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. And in, in police work, we realized that if someone witnesses a crime, if they witness a violent crime, they're of, they are um, eligible for assistance from the witness from the victim's assistance program. They don't have to be the person the crime was perpetrated against. They just had to be a witness. And in New York City, as I would drive on the subway, I would look around and I'd sort of I'd have the gear on that would identify that I'd been at Ground Zero. And one person would ask me a question: "Hey, what's it like down there?" And we'd begin to talk, and then I would just simply ask. Hey, tell me about your experience. Where were you when the towers got hit? Where were you when the towers fell? And I found myself in a subway car doing a, a, a critical incident stress debriefing with all these New Yorkers because they were all victims. They were all grieving. They were all in crisis. Not just, <clears throat> not just the people that were there that day. And that firefighter wasn't even there when the towers fell. So that, that training from the Santa Clara Police Department coming in, Full force. One of the reasons that you were brought there uh, by divine intervention. Just yeah, I'm here. I can support this car today. That's uh, it. That's a heavy load. Well, it is. But <clears throat> when you know that's what you're there to do, I, and I really do. I I don't. For me, I don't think this. Uh, there is some skill to it. I've learned a lot. I've taken classes and I've sharpened my skills. But I think basically for me, it's a gift that I've been given. And gifts are typically an area of your life that you do naturally. You know, and not everybody should help people in grief. There are just some people, that's not their gift. Um, they're better off, go make, a, go make a casserole and just drop it off uh, after right. the funeral. Uh, but everybody's, the, <clears throat> the key thing is what is your gift? And you should be doing what you're gifted to do with your life. And if your gifting is helping people in crisis, well then you need to find out where the people are and get there. And um, if you're gifting is making a casserole, you should drop it off at my house. So whatever, whatever, whatever your gift is, do it. So there is a heavy load. <clears throat> and honestly, you know, I do, I do um, a lot of work with funeral homes in our community. So I do about three to six funerals a month. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there's times that they get real heavy. 
I did I did two funerals last month. Um, one for a, a 20 year old young man who committed suicide, and another for a 12 year old boy who committed suicide. And those were really really hard. And you can't do those kind of crisis interventions and just walk away unscathed. <coughs> I'm sorry. So I, I have people that I go to. I have people that I use to unload my grief on. Right. Uh, I pay a therapist. Need. Yeah, I, I have a therapist and I pay him and I just say, hey, <coughs> we need to unpack some. You know, and some people say, well, you're a pastor, you have a therapist? And my question is, you don't have a therapist? <laughs> Come on, we all need a therapist. You know, so um, there, it is a heavy load. We're not designed to, to do that alone, though. We need to find people that can come alongside of us. Excuse me. Harris. <coughs> do you have a specific methodology uh, approach from guiding families? There's the, the long stage, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross method, yeah. you know, the five stages, and denial, anger, depression, bargaining, and acceptance. But uh, yeah, I, I think that that played an incredible role in how we would share with people. Yeah at one time, but it has to have evolved. Well, Do you use pieces uh, of that? The thing I don't like about that is the word stages. Because stages, stages imply that it's linear and that you can predict it. Right. And one of the things I know, I've learned about grief, is that the grief is not linear, nor can you predict when any of those things will happen. Now, I think those are all legitimate things that happen in the process of our grief. The denial and the the shock that we go through, that all happens. That's all legitimate. You just don't know when it's going to happen. And I've learned, you know, if you say, well, what is what is um, <clears throat> what is my methodology? I think the number one thing that I tell people when they're grieving is, oh yeah, that's normal. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, <clears throat> we all grieve differently. So if someone comes to me and says, man, I am so angry. I say, well, that that's normal. Right. Or they come and they say, I'm just depressed. <clears throat> well, that's normal. That's, that happens to people in their grief. That's a normal thing. And I think the biggest worry that people have in their grief is, what, is there something wrong with me? And it's an amazing thing how we want to make sure that we're doing grief right. And right, so, which is back to your, your initial thought. that you, you thought you had it pegged at it. an early age. Yes. And then I, I think everybody else lives in that box too, that, hey, I, I've seen this method and how do I get to acceptance? And, and so the, I do. the best thing we can do for people in their mm -hmm. grief is normalize it for them, is let them know, no, you're not going crazy. Um, when, you, when you go to the mall and everyone's just going on as if life is normal and you feel like, what in the world is happening? Why are, we, why, why are you not, that's a normal feeling. Nicholas feels that, Ryan feels that, Everyone feels that. It's normal. Now, you're not going to be able to fix that. Everyone's still going to go on with life. But it's normal for you to feel that way. And so um, that's probably, you know, and there's always the exceptions. There's always some people that you go, huh, that ain't normal. You know, and you have to help them. There's some people that are saying, I want to, I want to take my life. Well, that's not normal. I got a plan on how I'm going to commit suicide. That's not normal. Based so on now, experiences. Based increase. on experiences, agree. And so now we need to we need to intervene in that area with more than well. That's normal, right? We, we need to step in. That needs attention. That needs attention. And you got to know when to refer. You got to know when when there's something that's so big that you don't have time for it, or you don't have the talent or ability to, to handle it. You just got to know. Hey, we got to give this person some help beyond me. And right. So when we know that then boy, we're, we're, we're able to help people a lot. So it's not a flawed, uh, flawed paradigm. It, it's just, uh, it was believed, I think, a long time ago to be linear, and yeah. now we know that it, it's moving parts. And if, yeah. you've, if maybe you've achieved acceptance, that doesn't mean that you can't go back. That's right. To denial. That's right. Um, or anger. Yeah, or, or just shock. I mean, uh, my wife um, lost her mom when she was 23 years old and her parents were divorced, and she, her and her mom lived alone together. It was a huge loss in her life. Well, that was 30 years ago. And um, she still has moments where she just really, really, really misses her mom. It never, it never, that, that feeling never really goes away. I, I had a friend, Jody, and she lost her son. He was, uh, he was 13 years old, had a brain tumor. And it's been about five years since he had passed away. And um, 
And as, as her and I were talking one day, I just asked her, I said, Jody, describe to me what, what your grief is like five years down the road. And we grew up in, the, both of us in Modesto, in the Central Valley and of California. And, um, and there's a lot of tule fog and a lot of thick fog in that, in that area in the wintertime. And she said, Ryan, my grief is a lot like fog. I said, well, tell me about that. She says, well, some days I wake up and I look outside and I can't even see across the street. It's so thick. And on those days, it's, I just know it's better for me not to go outside. It's not safe. It's not safe for me, and it's not safe for people when I'm driving. She's probably not going to be bringing anything out into the world that's positive. That's so right. So that her. grief is thick. She says, some days I look out, and it's, the fog is lifted. It, it's, it's, it's high in the sky, but it's gloomy. And I can, still, I can go outside, and I can navigate the world. And she said, now that I'm five years down the road, she says, some days I look out, and it's partly cloudy. And I can see the sunshine. And so I thought, what a great analogy. And she says, now, I still to this day come out and I check the weather to see is if there's still days when it's low fog and my grief has me socked in. Her own personal barometer. Her own personal barometer. And she just knows I need to adjust my schedule today based upon where I'm at in my grief process. And so I think the people that, come, that came up with all of those stages of grief, I mean, that was revolutionary for the day. They were at least talking about grief and they were giving us the foundation to have this conversation today. And I would never say, well, what were they thinking? You can't put it like, no, that they, were, they, were, they were moving us so far ahead in the conversation. And so we take that now and we want to move that conversation ahead to say to people, hey, you never know what it's going to be like, but you, you can count on some things that are predictable. Right, so it's not, it's not wrong in any way, shape, or form. It, it just, it's evolved and That's we exactly. need uh, to allow it to, but we have a bedrock and a foundation and, and words that we can use to describe phases, but when we're in them, uh, they can be defined. That's right. That's right. Uh, as far as families that are going through um, the stages of grief, how do you stay in contact and how much of that is on them versus uh, you know, a pastor in that relationship? Well, um, I think it's a, the, the question is really well asked in this, that you have to figure out what people need. Some people need a phone call um, once a week. Some people just need to be left alone. And uh, you, some people need help, but they don't want it. And if someone doesn't want help, well, then, then you can't help them. But I, I find for me that the crucial time for me is helping them before the service then I'll keep in contact with them after. I have a friend who just lost, um, he just lost his, his mother a week ago, and he lost his wife 10 months ago and to breast cancer. And so the way I, I work with him is um, he's, um, he's kind of started going back to the gym. And I, I, I love to go to the gym, I go to the gym often. And so what I do with him is I just say, hey, hey, you're going to the gym, let's go together. And so I just take it, I'll go with him to the gym, and, and it's after those times in the gym, we have the best conversations. But you know, he's, he just needs someone to hang with him a little bit. He needs someone to be there. So some people, I'll, if I think I can help them in a big way, I'll go spend a lot of time with them. And some people, it's just a quick text message to just say, hey, thinking about you today, praying that all is going well. And it's amazing how meaningful that is. People don't need long conversations more as much as they just need to know they haven't been forgotten. And so I do that a lot. That is a, an, an important message I share um, at funerals a lot is that there needs to be that constant contact. Yeah. So that you're, you're continuing uh, celebrating that life. And if it is just a simple yeah. message or an email or God forbid someone put pen to paper and Doctor, send a letter, right? Dr. Norman Wright. Um, is a psychologist who's written a book on, on helping people in crisis and he made he makes a great point he says it's better to give somebody four 10-minute segments throughout the week than it would be to give them 45 minutes one time and sometimes we think that we have to invest a ton of time 
helping people in their grief when really what we need to do is have more have it's more helpful to have smaller contacts spread over time than it is to just give them a big block of your time one, one, one time a week and so in that same way it's better to give somebody uh, 10, 10 minutes of your time every week once a week than it would be to give them an hour over the month and so um, I just think we all just need to do our parts and not forget and I think um, probably like for example men get forgotten more than women do when a husband dies people tend to have a lot of sympathy for the widow they want to cut her grass fix her car uh, take care of her when a wife dies men just go back to work and people just part of that old world that hey we're going to bury it they'll be fine they're yes. strong and stoic yeah but really that's someone crying for help that doesn't yeah. want to ask yeah and they just tend to stuff it and it usually results in, in bitterness and uh, a negative outlook on life and so it's those it's those people that I tend to watch the ones that no one else is taking care of those are the ones I try to follow up with you know uh, one of the things that I, I experienced a bit of is um, you know, kind of voyeurs in grief. Someone loses someone and, okay, here's the accident. I want to be a part of it. So yeah. it's not authentic. Their outreach isn't there. Or the individual that means well but says the wrong thing yeah. because you can't – that's the problem is we, we can't coach all the people on what to sure, say. Sure, sure. Uh, but, but how do you prepare someone – that is grieving yeah. immensely um, about something that has recently happened um, with those things that are going to come their way. So you're talking like when someone about like when someone says, "Hey, at least you have three kids. Uh, it's not so bad." Yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, something stupid. And you know, people people really are compassionate, but sometimes their compassion is is um, is in competition with their stupidity because we can say stupid things. And I always I always tell people, you know, there's there's times right now for you that you really need grace in your grief. To the person you're that's you're grieving, gonna, you're saying yeah, this. You're, to the person that's grieving, I tell them, you don't you need grace right now, don't you? Oh yeah, Pastor, I need grace. Because <laughs> right. I'm forgetting things and I'm under a lot of pressure and I'm sad. I said, and and people are letting grace flow to you. You need to know that during this season of your life, people are giving you grace. And the key with grace, it's, it's really undeserved favor. The key with grace is that grace is most powerful, not when it just flows to us, but when it flows through us. And so I always encourage them in the same way that you are the benefactor of people's grace. Don't let that grace die with you. When people say stupid things, just remember, people say stupid things. And it's not a reflection of their love for you. They're trying to comfort you. And so would, if you would be best served by allowing that grace to flow to you. And just think in your heart, oh, bless their hearts. They don't know how stupid they are. And just <laughs> Today, in yeah, this statement and that thing, just foolish. And, but I, I, of all the grief you're going through, let that go. Don't let that complicate your grief. It's sometimes hard in the middle of grief because that's something that you're like, well, I can't be mad at this person for yes. being gone. I can be mad at this person who is well-meaning. Yes. Now, I was talking, I was talking to a, a gentleman, the, the gentleman of the, of the 20-year-old who committed suicide. And he says, if one more person tells me that I'm in their thoughts and prayers, I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, Good to no. be tied. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing wrong with saying to somebody, you're in my thoughts and prayers. But I was very mindful from that point on, even when I sent him a text, not to say, hey, I'm praying for you. Because that wasn't helping him. And so I think it's good for us as, as people, because we're all going to be around people who are grieving, because the truth of the matter is, everyone's going to die. So we're all going to know people who know people who, who have died. Right, it's not six degrees of separation. No, right. it's, it's instant, it's now. Right. And so we just all need to be mindful of kind of taking their cues and saying, what do you need and what's going to be helpful for you? And oftentimes, uh, what's helpful is not what we say, but it's what we do. It's our presence. The most helpful thing, we, we, a lot of people shy away from helping their friends in grief because they don't know what to say. And, and the best thing to say oftentimes is nothing. Uh, 
there's a proverb that says, even a fool will appear wise if he remains silent. <laughs> and, and oftentimes what we need to do with people is just exercise what I call the, the ministry of presence. And when, when, when people are going through deep grief, they don't need you to come and tell them how to do it. They just need to know they're not alone. And so um, I, I can save myself a lot of trouble when I, from, and, and I, I circumvent saying stupid things when I just allow myself to be present and not feel the need to talk. Oftentimes we say stupid things when we feel pressure to say something. And we just need, we just need to not feel that pressure. We need to resist it and say, yeah, that's, that's not working for me. I, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna say something just to say something. I'm gonna be present and I'm, that's gonna be the biggest help. I've been reading through the book of Job. It's in the Jewish scriptures, the book of Job. And Job had three friends and his friends came and sat with him for seven days and they were a wonderful source of counsel. And then one of them did a stupid thing. He opened his mouth. And as he began to open his mouth, he did everything but help their friend. And, and I came to the conclusion that the best thing we can do oftentimes is just sit quietly. Just be present. Wait, wait for the, the person that is, that is grieving to give you clues on what they need. You, know, well, they, you, you mentioned that with the firefighter and you mentioned yes. that early on with that's when you found out that you could be good at this even though people had found you yes. that you needed to figure out how to listen better yes. and that you needed to sit next to the firefighter and let him open up yeah. to you. And just be present. Uh, you know, some people are afraid, they're afraid that if they, um, they don't go to a place where they can help somebody because they're afraid that if they get there they'll be inadequate. But I've learned this, if I don't show up, well then I, I am inadequate. I you absolutely have, cannot help if you, you don't. You can't help if you're not there. You must be present to win. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, so the biggest thing we learn to do is just come and sit quietly. And, then, and, and, and with humility, recognize that probably we don't have the answer to their problem. That there's none of us that have the solution to that deep grief. And to be at peace with that. But to be present with them as they wrestle through that hard time of their life. Um, you know, in the 23rd Psalm, which we mentioned earlier, everybody likes to have that at their thing. Right. Yeah. God said, uh, the, the scripture says, David said, you're my shepherd, I shall not want. Then he goes, he says, you lead me in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And then he comes and he says this peculiar statement. He says, you lead me in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And I think, that's awesome. I want that. I want to be in the paths of righteousness. Next line says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. And the key on that is that even God, his presence is what helps us through the valley of the shadow of death. He is with us. And we can, we can be that representation of God when we will go with people and we will walk through, with them through that dark valley. It's, it's, it's our presence, not necessarily our words, that make all the difference in people's lives in that time. And through. And through. We need, yeah. to get, we need to get... We don't have to live there. Right. God does not say, even though you're camped in the valley of the shack, He right. says, you're passing through it. And I think that's something that people have to realize in their grief. Um, you know, one of the things, one of the great things we got from 12-step um, programs, like Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, are, are the slogans that they use. And one of those is, this too shall pass. And as dark as it gets, we need to realize, oh, this too will pass. The sun will come up uh, another day. And we just need to keep walking through the valley, and we'll find that, that peace. I wanted to ask uh, kind of a few fun questions, service okay. and funeral specific. Um, things that you might have might not have, uh, you know, as a funeral director, sometimes people ask me, burial and cremation, yeah. and it's still a, white, a conversation my wife and I are having. Yeah. Have, is that a conversation you've had, and is, uh, have you made the decision for burial or cremation? I haven't. I don't care, because I won't be here. Uh, so <laughs> I kind of left that with my, to my, with my family as to, hey, what do you need? I think, that's, I think sometimes we think about what do I want, and it's, you know, the burial 
or the earned present or whatever isn't really about me. I'll be gone. It's what's going to be the most comforting thing for my family. And if my family needs a place um, that they can go and they can um, come and remember my life and have my body there, okay, great, bury me. If they don't care, I don't care. If they want to cremate me, you know, I think it's cremation is simply, and some people have religious objections to it. I just think cremation is just taking the, um, the t- deterioration process and just put it on a hyperspeed. Boom, we're done. You know, it's all, it's all finished. So um, I don't really care that much. I'm cheap, so I'd probably say just cremate me. It's a little right. cheaper. <laughs> Save the cash. Uh, but service, service, is that important to you to have a service to celebrate? Uh, I, think, I think that um, funeral services are a huge part of the grief process. Um, I'm often saddened when I hear that someone passed away and they, no one had a service for them. Uh, it's part of our culture, but it's, it's an amazing thing how in our culture when someone dies, how we all hit pause on our lives and we stop and we come to this room and we remember them. And I think it's, I think it's awesome. And um, I think it's awesome not just for the deceased person, but I think it's affirming for every person that's alive. Because what it says to us in that room is that we too will be remembered. And I, I, one of our biggest fears is the fear of insignificance and the fear of being forgotten, that our life didn't matter, that it didn't count. And so when we can come set, into, set in a room and we remember that person's life and we reiterate, this life counted. When we do that, then all of a sudden um, we realize our lives count too. Uh, services are there not because a person died. We do a service because a person lived. Right. And because they're, they live their life adjacent to us, then, then we get to go and celebrate how their life impacted ours. And I think it's a time of gratitude. It's a time of expressing our gratitude that a person came into our life. So I think services are super important um, for everybody. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's a beautiful thing to celebrate life, to yeah. tell stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one that I, I've been thinking about a lot and I haven't landed on, but, but maybe you have. If anyone could preside over your service and to help tell your story, when life's being celebrated, who would that be? Wow, that's a great question. Uh, I haven't thought that much about it, to be honest with you, but I would probably think my younger brother. Yeah? Is he a minister yeah, as well? He is a minister as well, and um, my best friend. And he and I are wired a lot alike, and so um, he, he, like me, uh, helps a lot of people during the grief process. But um, I think he would do a great job. And I think my wife would probably do a great job as well and um, so those would be the two people that I'd I'd probably want for sure to be speaking at my service Um, there's always a temptation that I have to do a recording (laughs) I just kind of speak at my own funeral but that's kind of vain and kind of silly so have you ever thought about recording a message I have I have I I think that I've heard about a pastor uh, that recently did that okay and he was older and, they, and he pulled it off. It was an awesome part of his funeral service. He just kind of gave a blessing um, over his church that he had pastored for many, many years. And, uh, but I, you know, I thought about it, but never seriously contemplated doing it. I, just, I, I think a funeral is a time for others to step up and say what's meaningful. Um, I've had plenty of opportunity to say what I want to say. And if I need one more service, yeah, there's something wrong with that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, your impact is then shared through other individuals. That's right. One of the things that's been incredibly important for me throughout life, and I think for everyone, it defines um, how we watch movies and how we do everything. But I think it's it's super important for a funeral. Is there music, is there a song or songs that you've thought about that you'd like to have played at your funeral? Great question. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. Songs and music selection are so very important. I think you can do too many songs at a funeral, but I think if you pick the right song, uh, it can be it can really be so poignant and so meaningful. So I have I have a song that I thought for my funeral. I, I was driving in my car and I heard this song on the radio, and I thought that's the song for my funeral right there, which is a weird thought, right? It's just kind of a crazy thing, but it's called the song is "Through It All" by a guy named Colton Dixon, and uh, it just really. Um, I was listening to it and the first time I heard it, I cried. 
because because uh, the song talks about the fact that um, there's there's times in your life that are high, there's times that you win, there's times that you lose, but the consistency of all of it is that God has been with me through it all. And in my life, I look back and you know if you'd have told me at, at 20 years of age, hey, pick the line for your life, I would have never thought this would be the direction my life would go. But as I look back, I realize in all of the different areas of my life, God has been with me through it all. Even you know, His direction. Uh, my wife and I adopted two boys when we were 24 years old. They were 8 and 10, and we were 24. I mean, we were young enough, you could have adopted all of us. And, and then we found out a year and a half later, we had another niece uh, who was um, 8 months old. And so we adopted her. And then we finally figured out and birthed, uh, birthed, figured out how to do it. And about four years later, we birthed our own daughter. And, uh, uh, and so we've got this family that, that just like was, um, it's an amazing, our kids are amazing. But there have been some hard times. There have been some times when life wasn't good for us. When my, when my wife's um, brother, my brother-in-law committed suicide and took his life. That was a, a dark time. But I look back and I realize God was there through it all. That in the moment when 9-11 happened and, and I looked and I heard God speak to me, there he was. When I get down there and I'm overwhelmed and feel, I feel overwhelmed and underqualified to help anybody, that God was there through it all and he gave me the right words at the right time for the right person. And so when I look at, and that's just a snapshot of, of my life, when I look at all of that, I realize God's been with me through it all. And it would almost, for me, it would almost for me be a tragedy to come to my funeral and, and make it all about me. Because um, anything good that's come out of my life, I feel like God gets the credit for that. That uh, There's a lot of things that I've done that I've looked back and I thought, yeah, I'm not that good, but God is. And so through it all, God's been there. The ups, the downs, the highs, the lows, he's been consistent for me there. You talked about gifts earlier. Um, you know, some people make a casserole. Yeah. Some people can guide you through your grief. And fortunately for Colton Dixon, he used that gift to uh, exactly define a storyline. Yeah. For not just your life, but many others. So, yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, share your gifts. And he probably, you know, that could have could have been a song he wrote in the af- one afternoon. He just got a good idea to sit down. <laughs> and we would think, how can you write such an amazing song so easily? And and it's a gift. And that's basically one of the clues as to where we're gifted at are the things that we do so easily that others look at and say, how do you do that? Well, and we go, well, what do you mean, how do I do it? I yeah. just, I just. First time I heard you speak, that was when I knew. I said, I gotta, I gotta know Ryan. Hmm. Guided over a service and took a room full of people that were all grieving all the morning and um, defined with similarity where we all were, hmm. whether we had lost someone that year, yeah. earlier but it was and put Nicholas, that together I'm not that good <laughs> so I, I just gotta say you know that that's that's God that, that every gift that he gives us and sometimes I think in the religious worlds we think that our gifts are only to be used within the church or the faith organization but when God gives us a gift that gift is never intended to be used for our benefit it's always intended to be used for the benefit of others and I think that there's a lot of gifted people that are missing the whole purpose of their life because they're using their gift to gain wealth rather than to add wealth to people. To, and, and that's what I think the greatest fulfillment comes in our world when we realize this is what I was born to do and I'm doing exactly what God wanted me to do. You know, it's, it's, it's that niche. It's, it's what um, Colin says in his book, I think it was the one um, built to last, but find the thing that you do best in the world and then do that. And, and that's where you're going to make an impact and change the world. Right. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for being with you. I, I know you've got other things um, that you're working on mm-hmm. in the world. Is there anything that you can share, uh, tell people about? Oh, I'm, I'm working. I'm, I'm, I, I would hesitate to say I'm working on it. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> and sometimes for me, um, thinking is working. But I, I want to write a book called uh, Permission Granted uh, that would help men in grief. And so that's one of the projects that's on my back burner. But um, you keep encouraging me, and others do, 
And so one of these days that book's going to come out and when it does, well, we'll come back and talk about it. I'm excited to read it. I hope. Uh, community outreach, things that you're doing in the community through Bethel. Yeah, we got some great stuff coming down the road. Um, in, uh, in November, we're going to do a, 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 an event we call um, Convoy of Hope. And we're um, going to join together with churches all over our city and help people um, that are in, in need financially and in resources. We're looking to help what we would classify as the working poor. Uh, the people that are Which is working, well defined here in the Silicon yes, Valley. Yes, people right? that are working hard but having to live in subpar housing that are barely making ends meet. And we are going to come in and we're going to bring in um, groceries, foods and services. Our goal is to give away over a million dollars of goods and services to our community and to do you know mammograms and dental work and we're using we've been, we're in conversations right now with the San Jose Giants with the fairground and we're looking to find a big venue that we can use and so that's coming down the pike in November. We're excited. Convoy of Hope. Yes. Convoy of Hope. Convoy of Hope. That's an organization that um, basically you, you may have heard of them they they take semi trucks uh, full of food and water and they do several different things. Um, one of them they do is they go to disaster areas and they bring in relief. Matter of fact, um, I'm connected with Convoy of Hope in a roundabout way, and they were kind of an in for me at Ground Zero. They were um, supplying food and different supplies to the staging areas when I went into Ground Zero. They're also, when we have fires, they're sending food and water and paradise. different things. The paradise and all of that, and Reading and all of that area. And they do convoys where they come into neighborhoods and they just bless people. Food is all donated from different corporations in different areas. They work with the NFL. At the Super Bowl, they do a big NFL convoy, one day event, and very similar to what we're going to do. And so they're an organization that's international and all over the world. And so we partner with them wow. and do that. Sponsored and centered through uh, Bethel. Uh, Bethel Church. And actually, we're putting together a, a large... A uh, group of churches here in the city. Uh, Westgate is going to be working with us, Cathedral of Faith, Family Community Church. There's a lot of churches wow. that are, uh, some of the larger churches in the city, Venture, are all coming together, and we're going to do this together. That's incredible. Is there, uh, these days, with this is cut. Uh, with social media, is there is a way for people to at or hashtag Instagram or website that? Yeah, I'm on I'm on all of those uh, at Ryan Wright and at Facebook. You can just find Ryan Wright. I think my hashtag at, um, at Twitter is Ryan E Wright, and uh, I don't do a lot of that. I'm um, I'm the boots on the ground. I'm at that age where I <laughs> it always changes. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. I don't know if I'm tweeting or Facebooking or what I'm doing, but um, I'm on there and, and if you'll reach out to me, you can always reach out to me by email at ryan.wright at bethel.org and I'd uh, love to help people any way I can. Thank you so much, Ryan, for sharing your experiences, um, helping people through grief and certainly being here with me today and having that conversation. I'm well, grateful. Thank you. I think this is a great idea. I'm so glad we're doing it. Appreciate it. Blessings. Thank you, Ryan, for your incredible insight and the passion you have for caring for families in our community and our country when we need you most. You can reach Ryan via Facebook at Ryan Wright, through email at ryan.wright, that's W-R-I-G-H-T, at Bethel.org, or find him through their website at Bethel.org. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you for listening to the Guiding Grief Podcast. We hope you heard a small message to provide you peace and solace on your grief journey. I would like to thank our sponsors, Darling Fisher, Family Mortuaries, and Los Gatos Memorial Park. Please remember to practice kindness. You deserve it and our world needs it. I'm your host, Nicholas Welsenbach, signing off.